0: This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnik. And now, Radio Joe Hughes.
1: Dan, welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. It's episode 723. This week, we welcome Tina Brookner, Dr. Elliot Horner, and Don Weeks. We're going to talk about the new ASHRAE Guideline 42-2023, Enhanced Indoor Air Quality in Commercial and Institutional Buildings. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the, the we can the show. show. IAQ, IAQ Radio IAQ. Association sponsors are AIHA, the American Industrial Hygiene Association, at AIHA.org. IICRC, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at iicrc.org. The Restoration Industry Association, RIA, at restorationindustry.org. The Environmental Information Association, EIA, at eia-usa.org. IAQ Radio Industry sponsors are Particles Plus, at particlesplus.com. BioPlanet, at byoplanet.com. Actionable Insights, at get insights.org.
0: And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ radio trivia question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to C Zlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Dawn Weeks Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I was here with us in person today. Dawn was first to identify the relationship between ABC's Wide World of Sports and Victor Boketaj. Dawn said that Victor Bocatage's ski jumping accident represented the agony of defeat on the program, and that's <laughs> correct. Here's this week's IAQ radio trivia question. In what year did... The American Society of Heating and Ventilation Engineers publishes first Heating and Ventilating Guide. Back to you, Joe.
1: Okay, so let's first introduce our our guest. Tina Bruckner is a senior engineering manager for engineering development at Engineering System Group's Federal Business Unit. She oversees a team that provides schematic and detailed design submittals, scopes of work, and measured and verified savings for the technical solutions on performance contract. She's the subcommittee chair for Guideline 42 and has a BS in electrical engineering from the Milwaukee School of Engineering and is a certified energy manager and lead accredited professional. Dr. Elliot Horner leads, is the lead scientist at UL Solutions, has worked in the indoor air quality field for over 30 years, conducting research and field investigations, providing training, disaster response, and litigation support, and was the director of an IAQ laboratory. He's a recognized expert on fungal allergens and the impact of moisture in buildings, and he's published over 50 research papers and book chapters. Don Weeks has over 48 years of comprehensive consultation experience and project experience in the implementation and management of inspections for hazardous materials in numerous buildings throughout Canada and the United States. Most of our listeners are familiar with Don. He is also a certified industrial hygienist and a certified safety professional. Welcome everybody. Great to have you aboard. Yeah, it's great to be here. All right. Let's start with Hello. Tina. You're you're a little new to our, our audience, so I want to kind of give the folks a little idea of what you do. Um, tell us a little bit more about why you do what you work, uh, what you do and why you're part of this effort.
2: Sure. Um, I work in uh, performance contracting, which is usually focused around energy. And so I've done a lot of energy improvement projects. Um, but uh, it, early on in my career, I discovered that when you close the outside air, that there's kind of scary things in buildings. And uh, it introduced me to this concept. And uh, when I've, I've been in it, involved with ASHRAE for a very long time, and one of the committees, Uh, That I got involved with was standard 62.1. And uh, when we started getting involved with 62.1, you know, it was kind of my first standard that I was involved with. And I guess I never made the connection that you really can only meet code with 62 or with the standard. And so uh, when the concept of the guideline came about in our discussions, it was how do we go above and beyond the standard? And so I was pretty darn interested in. Helping with the document that we're talking about today. Tina, is it
1: is it accurate to say that uh, this guideline builds on to what's kind of required by sixty two point one?
2: Yes, that's exactly what it is all about. It's really going above and beyond um, the the standard, but also making sure uh, that we're using using validated information to create that. So,
1: and and let's, let's go over to Dr. Elliot Horner. Elliot, can you update our listeners? I can't believe it's been over 10 years since you've been on the show. Uh, at that time, I don't think you were with UL. Can you give our audience a little idea of what you're doing these days?
3: Uh, I was already with UL at that point. Uh, 2011, UL bought Air Quality Sciences, and that was when I uh, became a UL employee. And then recently, the you know, new CEO changed our name to UL Solutions, but it's a same, same UL. Um, what have I been doing? Um, some chamber testing got involved in, uh, particle measurements, still doing some some work with moisture and a little bit more work with, uh, standard setting, uh, groups like ASHRAE and and, and ASTM.
1: It's great to have you back after all this time. I I should have had you sooner. And Don, of course, a lot of people on the, you know, on the call know you, but, um, why do you feel, you, you're you the one who kind of told me, hey, we need to do a show on this. And when I first saw it came out, I was like, okay, that's interesting. Uh, but I didn't have a copy to read and I didn't realize how good it is. Um, and then you said, you know, we ought to do a show on this. And I, I was able, able to get my hands on a copy and read it over. What a huge effort and a, an excellent document. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what Led to your interest in this, and and why do you think the industry needed a guideline beyond ASHRAE
4: 62.1? Yes, uh, well, I, as we were talking before the show, I mean, this is an ongoing effort that started probably in uh, 2016 or 2017. Uh, I was a member of the um, 62.1 at that point, and this came up as a as as a guideline that would go. Be a useful tool for all of the IQ uh, community, you know, looking to go beyond the minimum standards provided in sixty-two point one. It took quite a while to to get this together because there was a lot of different information that people wanted to include in that in there. But it certainly is a a uh, guide that builds on the 62.1, which is the minimum standards, particularly in terms of ventilation, and enhances the indoor air quality in a building. So it's to fill a gap between the minimum requirements and the standards, which leads to the best practices enhanced for IEQ, as shown in guidance 42. Uh, who
1: wants to jump in here real quick? And, you know, Astrid, 62.1 was updated in, in 2022. And I just want to kind of start with what were the key updates at that point, and then we'll build on that with a guideline.
4: Well, I'll start it off because I I I'm I'm always been a big mouth. So one of the big <laughs> changes is has been with regards to the way in which the, the standard uh, uh, looks at uh, indoor humidity. Uh, there, it was published in 2019 and updated in 2020, but it basically is you know it's a section uh, in 2022 5.12 which talks about the type of uh, of, uh, elements or equipment and controls needed to control maximum indoor dew point. So this is dew point replacing relative humidity as the criteria by which you judge whether something is successful. Um, And obviously the current humidity requirements are meant to address mold and and comfort. Uh, So it's it's an impact on the design in terms of the amount of, of water vapor that's available for condensation and uh, it changes what you look at in terms of the surface as opposed to relative humidity which quite frankly is not a good indication of what might be on the surfaces around the the area so that was changed and you can look in the in the section i mentioned uh, 5.12 of 2022 which gives you a a pretty good idea of exactly what it is in terms of the uh, dew point 60 degrees fahrenheit and uh, and it shows a, a diagram which basically uh, applies only to mechanically cooled spaces, but gives you a good idea of exactly what you're what you're aiming for.
3: And Don, don't forget that applies to periods of unoccupied uh, when buildings are unoccupied, which is what uh, one of, had historically been one of the problems: is lack of humidity control during unoccupied periods.
4: Thank you, Ellie. That's great. To, uh, I didn't bring that up. You're right. So that was one of the big changes I saw. Um, and Tina or Elliot, what what else were you looking at in terms of changes?
2: Um, I think one of the things that uh, also we were tr- we uh, reorganized the systems and equipment area to reflect the actual airflow through the building to try to make a little more sense of the the process. So that was also an update that came uh, for for this 2022 version.
1: You know. You mentioned that it follows the outdoor, you know, the air. And I noticed right away, the guideline does the same thing. It follows the air in the building. Uh, Grayson, can you put up that little outline we put together? I wanna to kind of paint a picture for the audience that I would imagine most of you do not have a copy of the guideline in front of you right now, but it's, uh, it's enhanced indoor air quality in commercial and international institutional buildings. And it starts with outdoor air quality. It goes over the the building itself, the systems and equipment, the indoor air quality, the procedures, the construction system startup and commissioning, and then operations and maintenance. And then there are the references as well. So what I'd kind of like to do is follow that outline a little bit and and get each of you to talk a little bit about the different sections in here. I want to start with the outdoor air quality because when I read it, I was a little surprised, um, you know, I don't think people think of outdoor air quality as, as getting better. Uh, and and actually, when you wrote in, this, I, can someone just kind of explain to our audience what you wrote about in an outdoor air quality?
4: Well, I think one of the things you just mentioned is, is, is true. Uh, basically, you know, outdoor air quality has changed in the last decade, but it depends on where you are in the world. Uh, you know it, it it certainly is um it's improved in, in in uh uh principal air pollutants have dropped by 73 percent according to uh, uh who guidelines uh now some of them have risen over the you know uh over the years co2 emissions in particular uh have shown a um a gradual uh increase but have shown an overall decrease since two thousand and seven. Uh, and then other, uh, air pollutant emissions, uh, such as NO2 are down 44%. Sulfur dioxide levels down 70% and PM 2.5 is down 18%. Uh, percent. So these, these principal air pollutants have, uh, been reduced over that period of time. Uh, but that still doesn't mean that there isn't need for additional, uh, reductions. And then the WHO guidelines that are referenced from 2016 and 2021, those that the information is important, even though they are not standards or legally binding criteria, they are designed to provide guidance in reducing the health effects impacts of air pollution based on expert evaluation of current scientific evidence. So those those types of things are are important, and and, and that's why indoor air is an interesting section in many ways.
1: Well, outdoor air is is. It changes a lot, too. I mean, you get a lot of episodic episodes, like, for instance, wildfires are a big issue these days. And Tina, you mentioned earlier that, um, you know, you were involved in, in the early days of you do some energy-like work and shutting off the outdoor air was, you know, thought to be maybe something that would save some, it saves some money, obviously, but it yeah. caused other problems. Um, how do you see outdoor air these days? Is it is it a mixed bag?
2: Definitely. Um, again, it's it's improved as as Donna talked about, but you really need to bring in the right amount <clears> and then treat it properly inside, which is um, the parts that were really great about guideline forty two. We really talk about not just the outside air as it comes in, but how do you, what more can we do once it comes in? But yes, outside air is a mixed bag. It's great; you need that ventilation, but you also only should bring it in when you need to, if you look at the energy side. So
1: that energy side, I've I've always been, uh, I've been involved in these kind of like battles between the energy people and the the facility guys that are worried about indoor air quality. And and do you see that often?
2: Oh yeah. Everywhere I go. Um, There's definitely a, a mixture of people and what's important, but you can manage both. You just have to really communicate and work together on it.
1: I think what Dawn mentioned earlier is going to help, and that is moving toward looking at dew point as opposed to relative humidity. Um, Would you agree, Tina?
2: Yeah, I
1: would. I would. Do you see that in your practice? Do you see facilities guys starting to think about dew point as opposed to relative humidity?
2: I do I think um, it's getting better and better. The one one little gotcha that we see is that dew point sensors are not quite as, uh, there's more work involved in keeping them maintained correctly. And so there's there's still a little bit of work to be done, I think, in improving that part of things to really make it consistent. So we it, it's a mixed bag, I guess.
1: Well, and, and earlier, Elliot, you talked about you know you're looking at particles more, and and I assume you're dealing a lot with particle you know low cost sensors. And I'm wondering what are your what are your thoughts on on how things have evolved over the last ten years?
3: Well, there are a lot more low cost sensors on the market. Uh, some of them are quite good, some of them not. But let me uh, hesitate or pause just a moment to go hit on another aspect of the dew point. Uh, Measurements. If you're managing the indoor air humidity, the indoor humidity based on dew point, then you've got a very useful tool uh, in an infrared camera to look for problem spots. Because if you know the dew point of the air in the building, and as Don mentioned, you know, that doesn't, the relative humidity of the air doesn't tell you what's going on at the surface, which is, uh, with my background being with the mycology, the mold doesn't care about the air, the mold cares about the surface. And if you've got at least uh, five, or 10 degrees Celsius difference between your highest uh, surface temperature and the dew point, then that gap is going to really inhibit any kind of mold growth. So that's a, a tool that can be coupled with the new version, the current version of 62.1, to really help people look quickly and easily for any potential trouble spots. But now, now to your point about uh, particle sensors, there are a number of low-cost particle sensors that are quite good. They still, uh, many of them will report uh, readings in uh, mass concentration units, that is microgram per cubic meter. I think that's not good practice. There are particle counters, just report the particle count. Um, the conversion of particle count data to mass data micrograms per cubic meter requires three or four assumptions to make that conversion that mathematical correction none of those assumptions are ever true so you're violating about four or five assumptions when you convert counts to mass units um i think we'd be better off just sticking with the counts uh looking at it you know differential uh uh, measurements one place is uh Lower particle count than another, it's cleaner air. We should just be aiming for cleaner air rather than looking for some specific threshold because particulate matter uh, pollution, the health effects of particulate matter do not have a bottom end. The uh, the lower you go, the, the better it is. So just, in my opinion, use particles uh, as a count and um, try and keep it as low as possible. And that's pretty practical, pretty feasible these days with some of these low-cost sensors that are, are pretty reliable. So that's a big change over the last 10, 15 years.
1: Yes, it is. That's very interesting to me. I, I had not heard that before as many times as we've done this show. You're the first to bring that up. Elliot, you know, I appreciate that very much. Um, and I always did, when I did particle counting, I did counts. not. I, I didn't use the conversion often, so I don't know. Maybe I had an inkling that something wasn't quite right. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, do many particle counters of the low-cost kind? Uh, are are there any you can mention that specifically you think are doing a great job?
3: I would not. I don't have the brand names uh, on on top of my head, but there are several out there. Uh, some of them have been evaluated with third party testing procedures. Uh, some, many, are not, but uh, uh, the, Air, the American Association for Aerosol Research for the last four or five years at least have had a uh, paper presented about the use of these low-cost particle counters and a lot of them are are, are reliable and there's some some very interesting uh, research being done. There are efforts underway to try and couple these low-cost particle sensors with building management systems. There also are community science projects where uh, school children are got particle counters hanging on the back of their book bag uh, as a go through the day. How much are they exposed to in transit? How much are they exposed to at home and at school, et cetera? So we're seeing a lot of good information come out of some of these sensors.
1: It's just going to get better over time. That's great to hear. All right. So the next section we talked about outdoor, the next section was buildings. And I, I like how this was worded in here. It said to avoid microbial growth, the building and its contents must remain dry to accomplish that standard 62.1 requires that indoor dew point temperature remain at or below 60. We talked about that, but then it says, keep the indoor air dry enough to reduce the potential for surface moisture absorption that leads to persistent dampness. Damp materials allow microbial growth that can increase the probability of negative health effects. And it, it goes on to say, although bacteria and fungi are present in all buildings, and on all surfaces, their presence is generally without negative consequences for air quality or health until surfaces absorb enough moisture for a long enough period to allow growth and reproduction. I thought that was a pretty good way of of explaining that topic. Uh, Does that come from somewhere else, or is that something that your committee put together?
4: Well, Uh, we can't take full credit for that. Uh, you, You may recognize the name Lou Harriman.
1: Absolutely.
4: Uh, he, he was very responsible for a 2020 uh, Ashray document called "Damp Buildings, Human Health, and HVAC Design," and it was a report of a Ashray multidisciplinary task force on damp buildings. So that's where the, that information comes from.
1: That was go ahead, early.
3: <laughs> I can jump in. The um, idea concept that was we were trying to convey in that uh, paragraph because I probably had some fingerprints on that paragraph. Um, it's not. It would, microbes are all around us. It's not necessarily how many who who's there or how many are there, but what are they doing? Uh, I use an analogy sometimes. it's like teenagers in your basement. You really care that much about how many are down there or who is down there, but you really care about what are they doing down there. So when mo- building materials and surfaces become damp enough, accumulate enough moisture for these microbes to kick into gear, That's when the metabolism starts. That's when they start producing all sorts of stuff that's not was not there before. And that's that's the concept. That also keys into the dew point um, limit, which helps you control moisture accumulation in materials and on surfaces, and takes the focus away from what is the relative humidity in the air in the middle of a room.
1: I think that's a great statement for people to put. Even in their reports, you know, that it helps explain it in layman's terms for people that are dealing with buildings and trying to maintain and, and uh, you know, inspect buildings and so on. Um, another, another topic under buildings was unintended airflow across the envelope, which I think is a, a big topic. And Tina, I'm sure that's something you deal with a lot. Tell our listeners a little bit about the importance of unintended airflow across uh, buildings.
2: Well, anytime you have unintended airflow, you're having unintended consequences. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I, I guess I, I don't remember exactly what the quote is or the section, um, but in my world, if we have unintended airflow, we're also wasting energy. So it's, it's a combination of the two.
1: And how do you stop unintended airflow?
2: Uh, there's uh, stopping the entrainment, uh, building envelope sealing. And um, managing that airflow, I, I guess, does that answer your question?
1: <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. I mean,
2: I think that's a good design.
1: Well, yeah. well, that's where and, I was headed. I think that's what your group does, Tina. You you, you design and and help people with managing unintended airflows.
2: Yeah, and and a lot of what I work in is our existing buildings, not um, a new building. So I also deal in trying to manage it after the fact. And that's probably even harder sometimes.
1: There was another section under buildings that kind of caught me a little off guard. I don't know why, but it was requirements for buildings containing environmental tobacco smoke areas and ETS free areas. How big of a topic is that? I mean, how many buildings still have environmental tobacco smoke areas?
2: Um, From what I've seen, it, it depends on the state you're in and the area um there's a few it's it's a lot less than obviously it was when I started in the industry um but it in fact it seems like people are in fact not just making uh no smoke within the building but within a certain distance from the from the building as well so it is getting better but there still are some locations out there uh, for instance casinos um you know and and that sort of operation they still use some of that tobacco inside the building and i think
1: airports
4: yeah airports that that tend to have that too yeah also remember this is an international uh standard and if you still go if you go beyond off america there are a lot of places where smoking is not really as restricted as it is in in the united states so there are going to be uh, situations where there are people still smoking in buildings there where you know large buildings particularly in uh, in e- either Southeast Asia or in Europe or in, in Africa which may benefit by having this particular standard out or guideline out there in terms of that.
1: Let's go to the go back to the uh, the outline there Grayson put that up so we can kind of show people where we're at right now within the standard. So we started with the outdoor air quality. Uh, we're talking a little bit about buildings. Now, I want to move into systems and equipment. And I noticed under systems and equipment, there were some interesting topics, one of them being outdoor air intakes. I, I didn't expect as much detailed discussion of outdoor air intakes as I saw in the guidance document. Why, why is there such detailed discussion of outdoor air intakes?
2: I guess I'll, I'll take this real quick. Um, I can give a, a, overview there. Um, it's still a concept where people are putting, or it ends up as you modify a building, you are not putting those intakes in the right location. That's one piece. And you're getting entrainment, re-entrainment of air and from exhaust as an example. And so, um, it isn't so much in original design, but we're finding it a lot in building existing buildings that where at I see it all the time in hospitals, unfortunately, um, where they have every intention, but they've modified the building so many times, those that was not uh, thought of early enough and through the process. So
1: and Don, I'm assuming you know, in all your evaluations you've done all over the place, is uh, outdoor air intake location a common problem for you?
4: Oh yeah, I mean, basically, if you got a, a I mean, uh, the one I remember the most vividly uh, was was a survey where we were looking at uh, at the roof-mounted uh, uh, HVAC units, and uh, within ten feet they had a, a discharge, <laughs> and so they were wondering why were they getting so much uh, pollution or, or, you know, areas where they were continuing to have problems with indoor air quality. Well, it's because the outtake was not really going to the, to the outside. It was going and being re-intrained into the, uh, into the, uh, HVAC unit. So it's, it's quite common to have that kind of problem. Now it's getting less so as, as people renovate buildings and do something about the, uh, uh, number of HVAC units they have on the roof, but it's still, it's still a major problem in terms of, uh, making sure that doesn't take place.
1: Another section in there under systems and equipment is one that is near and dear to our hearts here, and that is options for improved cleanliness and access. Um, I think that's an important topic that oftentimes gets overlooked. You spend a, a, a good bit of time in, and there's references in, in many of the sections actually to improved cleanliness and, and access. I wonder if, um, is that how did that come about? Why why did that become such an important topic in this document?
4: I, th- I think more than anything else, it's, it's because we're going to the enhanced level rather than just the minimum level. Um, so the minimal level is that 80 percent of the p- people um, don't have a problem in terms of uh, the air air quality. The 20%, if you have greater than 20%, is considered to be an issue. That's that's our criteria. With enhanced, you're looking beyond that. You're looking to try to make it so that everyone feels comfortable. Maybe not 100%, but definitely greater than 80%, so that you, you get a, a higher level of, of cleanliness, a higher level of in, improved indoor air, the types of, haz, uh, type of uh, problems that you may run into, uh, such as, um, you know, um, bringing in, uh, for example, uh, different types of animals into the building. We have that now with guardian dogs and things like that. What type of of hazards do we exist or may exist because of that? So you want to, you, you want to go beyond what you have as far as the minimum in 62.1. And the best way to do that is to have a higher level of cleanliness in the building.
1: There there was a comment, excuse me. And that improved access, it should be the law that every AC coil, have easy panel removal to inspect both the top and the bottom, clean and dirty sides. Actually, I thought you did a pretty good job in this document of describing just that and going over uh, moisture carryover in in very detailed terms. Um, I'm wondering why it was in such, there was so much detail in that area. I assume it's because you had a lot of Ashray people involved in this as well because that's their baby, you know, dealing with those coils. But there was a lot of, very interesting information on, on coil spacing and you know coil access and so on. Anybody want to comment on that?
4: I, I think basically what what uh, I saw the comment from Scott, Scott is a good friend of mine, of course. Uh, I'll have to get him a copy of the book somehow uh, so that he can get some of these ideas. Uh, Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, Many, most, or a good portion of the people who are writing this chapter, there he is, there's Scott's clapping. Uh, Basically, what we're looking to do is to uh, take the ideas that have been percolating within uh, the um, different committees, the standard settings committees within ASHRAE, and go beyond them. And that's quite honestly, quite an effort as we've talked about. And it wasn't always with a lot of agreement, okay? <laughs> Let me tell you, there's there's people who have different ideas and different ways of approaching it, but we feel that this document is the starting point for looking at uh, working closely together with people who are in the indoor air uh, area, ASHRAE, and obviously with the uh, occupational doctors and, and nurses and things of that nature. They can look at all of this and some of it is pretty it is pretty straightforward. And I think that's why we did it that way, is to make sure that people, um, you know, have an opportunity to actually enhance their indoor air quality if they take the the different sections that we are talking about and apply them to the, to the buildings that they're either building or that they're renovating. All
1: right, I've got another question on, on that section, and then we'll go to halftime in a moment here. But um, cleaning is mentioned and access quite a bit throughout the document, but I didn't see any good references or uh, descriptions of how to do the cleaning, what type of cleaning. Is that something
4: that's hard to find? I'm gonna defer to Tina on that. Do you have some thoughts?
2: Yeah, I was just gonna say that, I don't know that we um, probably focused as much as we should have on finding the references for that. So I couldn't tell you exactly if uh, there are good references, but what I would tell you is this document is under continuous maintenance meaning that we are gonna to continue to work on making it better and better. and That's certainly an area that we would we wanna focus on along with many others. There's well, I, constant I good stuff happening.
3: And that, we don't need to be on, people don't need to be on the committee to make continuous maintenance proposals. So if somebody has information on how to find cleaning procedures, the uh, committee is certainly, would, would welcome that.
2: Very much.
1: I'm wondering, I didn't notice NADCA, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, any of their standards referenced. Did I miss it or was it left out for a reason?
4: It wasn't left out for a reason. Okay, well, no, It was just not necessarily what we were looking at in terms of enhanced indoor air quality. I mean, they are very good at what they do. I mean, as you well know, I have lots of good uh, colleagues uh, working in uh, IEQA and elsewhere who do that kind of work. But it isn't necessarily what this document was about, and uh, you know certainly we can we can look at what they might propose and uh, be glad to consider it within the committee. Tina, you have some more thoughts on that?
2: No, I was going to say I think there's a lot of we can only cover so uh, so many things all at once. And again, um, this was the first time we wrote the document, and so we're always looking for ways to enhance it. And that very well could be an area we just didn't happen to. Uh, Pull their information into this one at this point.
1: How often do these get revised, uh, Tina?
2: Joe, remember 62.1 is a design
3: document for new buildings, and the guideline 42 is an overlay, as you mentioned before, of 62.1, but it's all about design of new buildings, not operations. So, uh, duct cleaning, if appropriate, if needed, is certainly valuable, uh, but that would be in a a different document, I think.
1: Okay. And Tina, how often is this going to be revised?
2: Um, we're looking, I believe, either on a three-year or a five-year cycle. I think okay. it's great.
4: But, right. but keep in mind what we said is, is the committee meets more frequently. So if you have a a uh, uh, some change that you're interested in or have some questions, you can certainly submit them in to Ashray, and they will be answered by the committee probably on a quarterly basis because we meet at least four times a year.
1: All right, let's go to halftime, Grayson. I'm a little behind, but uh, I wanted to make sure we broke it at a logical spot. Association sponsors are AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, a Healthier World, AIHA.org. The Environmental Information Association, EIA's multidisciplinary membership collects, generates, and disseminates information concerning environmental and occupational health hazards in the built environment at eia-usa.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry, iicrc.org. The Restoration Industry Association, the oldest and largest nonprofit professional trade association dedicated to providing leadership and promoting best practices through advocacy, standards, and professional qualifications for the restoration industry at restorationindustry.org. Industry sponsors are Particles Plus, feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us, particlesplus.com. BioPlanet at byoplanet.com. Improving human, animal, and environmental health with electrostatic spray technology and advanced chemistries at biobyoplanet.com. Actionable insights at getinsights.org. Actionable insights, no more mistakes, no more missed line items in your exactimate estimates at getinsights.org. All right, we're back. We've got Tina Brookner, Dr. Elliot Horner, and Don Weeks talking about the ASHRAE Guideline 42, Enhanced Indoor Air Quality in Commercial and Institutional Buildings. Cliff, before I go on, I want to make sure you get a chance to jump in here. Did you have any questions or follow-ups or comments?
0: Well, no, I, I think just, you know, Scott Armour's uh, discussion point regarding cleanliness, I, I think that you know, he wanted to know what the difference was between dust and the system. And uh, uh, you know, same dust in the occupied space. I think it's different because within the systems, it it it, uh, it concentrates uh, around turning veins. It constant, you know, anytime you hit an obstruction, anytime you change pressure, so on and so forth. It's going to concentrate in 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 those areas, and a lot of it's also going to concentrate more on horizontals as well. So just that comment. You know,
1: Cliff, you've, been, you've had a long history in, in the cleaning industry. Can you think of any documents that maybe we could recommend be involved, included here?
0: Yeah, maybe, uh, you know, uh, NADCA stuff, I would think. Uh, okay. You know, and, uh, you know, there's a new IICRC document that Tom Bells uh, uh, put together, which is really cleaning— uh, systems following mold remediation fire restoration so on and so forth that, that has some pretty good information in it so yeah but that would be more toward existing buildings i guess that's more towards the this is well more or be, that's more towards no not so much existing buildings, it's just more towards problems so it doesn't matter if it's a problem in a new building or problem during construction or Problem afterwards, it's just more event-related because I think that's sometimes where a lot of the challenges come.
1: Interesting. All right, let's move on to the indoor air quality section. This one is is loaded with great information. Um, some of the topics of interest are ventilation, air distribution, plenum system recommendations, air classification, and recirculation, which is one I, I definitely want to hit on, and then it does a job good job of going over the different types of pollutants, particles, microorganisms and viruses, gases and mixtures, talks about ozone. We don't have time to go through everything, but I want to make sure our audience knows what all's in there. I guess what I would ask is that each of you comment on that section and give us what you think are some of the key points. Let's start with you, Tina. Um, well, you
2: started with me. Uh-oh. No.
0: Um That's what we call an audible. You never know what he's (laughs) saying. I didn't
2: do that one very well. Um, I guess an area that um, we don't see as much of anymore are plenum systems, but they're still there in existing buildings. So that was an area that uh, was very interesting to me at the time, coming up with how do we handle that and making sure that that stays clean and, and properly maintained. Was.
1: You were reading my mind, Tina, that was I when I read that section I was like, oh, this is one that I run into. I used to run into all the time, especially in schools. Can you go over, do you remember some of the key recommendations on plenum systems, how to make sure that when you do have a plenum system, it's at least somewhat supporting indoor air quality.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I can't remember the exact um, uh, pieces. I guess Don or Elliot. Do you remember
1: Don? Do you recall?
4: I know. I'm actually trying to look for the standard right now and look. uh, I was preparing to to be the next after Tina that talks about some of these uh, contaminants, which I think are important. Um, Give us a chance to get back to uh, uh, Joe on that, and uh, we'll we'll make sure it gets into the blog that uh, Cliff will put in. But right now, I don't. I don't have it on the on the top of my um, my head on this.
1: Elliot was. Did you want to comment there?
3: Well, I will just jump ahead to the uh, different procedures if you want to. The uh, one of the big, uh, one of the new, new, newer aspects of ASHRAE 62.1 2022 was a revision of the IQ procedure, and a substantial improvement, in my opinion, there was having a list of design compounds that an engineer could uh, for when using the IQ procedure would have some specific compounds to model against with their mass uh, balance equations. Also, it provides a relatively short list of gas phase compounds that uh, manufacturers of air cleaners, gas phase air cleaners, can request to be tested with uh, in in a laboratory test to evaluate the efficacy of, of these gas phase air cleaners. And that was a Battle with within 62.1 and with various commenters over at least six or eight years to be able to to get something in about how to uh, what to look for what specific compounds to look for, for examples and to facilitate adoption of the IAQ procedure, uh, and that's a big step forward. And there's also you're probably aware a lot of uh, activity right now within ASHRAE. Looking at uh, developing test methods for various gas phase air cleaners other than just uh, racks of uh, of carbon, so that that was a big step forward. I thought, in my opinion, mirroring to some degree the the trend within indoor air quality of going from reactive problem solving to proactive. Let's avoid bad bad um, situations that we've learned about in the past.
1: And. Maybe we could go into a little more detail on um, the three procedures to design for indoor air quality, the ventilation rate procedure versus the indoor air quality procedure versus the natural ventilation procedure. Ellie, you just talked about the, the indoor air quality procedure and, and the list of contaminants. I noticed that it was also in the guidance. I think it's the same one that's in not, uh, 62.1. Is that accurate?
3: It should be, Yes. The ventilation rate procedure most people are familiar with. It's the simplest. Even a biologist can handle that degree of (laughs) math. How many square feet do you have? How many people do you have? You get so much per square foot of space and so much per person. You add those together, and that's how much air you push into the building. Uh, The Iq procedure is designed and has been in 62.1 for a long time but had not been, been widely adopted. It allows a designer to reduce the amount of outdoor air ventilation if it can be shown to not negatively affect the indoor air quality. And that requires understanding what pollutants might be there and what the impact would be of uh, of uh, design features. And that could be, design features can include low emitting materials, that could be uh, also involve air cleaning, uh, which allows you to reuse the air uh, and save energy while not impacting negatively the indoor air quality uh, the other procedure is I believe a natural ventilation procedure and I'm not qualified to speak on that one so I'll just mention that it is out there that's the third procedure that was yeah, kind
1: of new to me too Don do you know more can you tell us more about that one
4: yeah that that's that's again goes back to the international basis of uh, of uh, of these standards. Um, many of the buildings that we go into in North America and in Europe are usually either heated or air-, air conditioned in some fashion. There's a ventilation, mechanical ventilation system, but that's not the case in many other parts of the world. So when you want to basically meet the requirements of 62.1 and you don't have a mechanical system in place, the natural ventilation system uh, or, or a procedure will allow you to show that you've done all you can to prevent the um, the inside uh, problem uh, of contaminants from outside uh, being you know, being uh, an issue. So it, it's, it's there because there are many buildings where this is going to be pertinent and, uh, and you know they' not just they're not just residential. they're, they're big uh, commercial pro uh, areas. Uh, there's medical facilities, there's all sorts of um, areas that don't have a mechanical system where this particular method or procedure can help them uh, improve the indoor air quality.
1: Very helpful. All right. So that actually was, we kind of got into, uh, Grayson, put that slide back up if you would. So we've gone through um, Um, the outdoor outdoor. air. Yes, Cliff. It wasn't me. Oh, okay. Um, We've gone through the outdoor air quality, the buildings system and equipment, the indoor air quality. And actually we just talked about some of the procedures When we talked about the ventilation rate procedure, the indoor air quality procedure, et cetera. Next is construction system startup and commissioning. And there were some really good tips on how to do construction without affecting IAQ. Uh, I think it referenced the SMACNA document, the sheet metal and air conditioning contractors, um, you know, which is for buildings under construction, Uh, several other good references in there. There's also a section on air cleaning devices. And I wondered if anybody would like to comment on air cleaning devices, which is a huge topic right now.
2: I guess I, I just make a quick comment. Um, there's We have some really good uh, information in there around air cleaning devices, but it is an area that is continuously changing. And so a big focus was to make sure it was around devices that have had the proper testing and and making sure that they will actually be effective. That was a constant, especially during the whole COVID world, right? That we've been living in lately. Um, There were a lot of things that were happening in that arena that we wanted to make sure we were really going to the, the pieces that have a testing involved. And I know that ASHRAE in other areas are working hard, and I'm sure there are other organizations as well on getting some test methods around this area that are more robust than what we have right now. And so we think that's an area that will grow quite a bit in this guidance. Yes, if
3: I can jump in on that, the uh, AHAM is one of the other organizations that now has for uh, residential air cleaners a procedure, a test procedure for gas phase air cleaning. And the COVID uh, epidemic triggered the development of ASHRAE 241, which most people are familiar with ventilation for control and for managing uh, infectious aerosols. Uh, that included a test procedure, a, t- a set of test requirements, both looking for efficacy for gas phase air cleaners as well as um, uh, looking for any byproducts. And that was a warp speed development uh, standard it did not go through the ANSI process it will be in the future it's also under continuous maintenance but it has also triggered ASHRAE 145 standard which is for gas phase air cleaners uh, to develop program uh, test procedures for air cleaners that are not single pass and there are a lot of those out there and um, that will be a fairly robust plan uh, test plan and 62.1 will now be able to point to some of those other standards for evaluating both the efficiency, the efficacy, as well as safety, that is, looking for any deleterious byproduct production uh, for any gas phase air cleaners. So there's a big step forward in that. And 62.1 had worked on that for years, as Tina mentioned, uh, and certainly got um, a lot of action jump started after the uh, pandemic.
1: Great. Uh, you know, there's a lot going on, Elliot, and I, I appreciate you jumping in there and adding that. That's that's all uh, important information. Now, another area in under operations and maintenance, I believe, um, is contaminants introduced by occupants. And that is always something that people doing indoor air quality work have to deal with. And I found that to be an interesting section. Um, I did not notice any comments on personal care products or having a program for how occupants can avoid causing indoor air quality issues. Uh, did I miss that, or was that something that needs to be added?
4: I'd say that that you're right. There's nothing specific in there in terms of personal uh, products. Um, so yes, it would be something that we would suggest that if there is an interest in that, that uh, that you go through the system of uh, making a comment or making or asking a question, whoever that might be, and uh, it certainly can be addressed before the next. Uh, addition comes out, Uh, but you're right. It isn't in there. What, what the, what is in there though, is information about what other people might bring into office buildings, uh, plants uh, as we mentioned, already mentioned, uh, uh, animals of one sort or another, their companions, things of that nature. Uh, And just, um, you know, just the, the, uh, everyday uh, slush that you bring in from the, from the outside, which can can contain all sorts of of stuff that's uh, on the bottom of your shoes. Which brings up an interesting topic that doesn't have addressed in this document, but you know there is a lot of movement afoot to have people take off their shoes, particularly northern climates, so they, they don't track it throughout the entire facility. Um, and so there's a lot there, but it's not complete as yet. We're all, we're looking always to add new things. So if that's something that's of interest, please um, please make a, a you know use the continuous maintenance system and uh, get it in there.
1: Yeah, I only bring it up because I I, I find. People complaining, especially now with this axe and, and, and the, that the kids use, and they, they, you know, and and it's it's very irritating to people who have sensitivities, and, and it's it's something that needs to be addressed. Uh, I, and it's a hard one to address because now you're talking about personal freedoms and and being able to wear your perfume or your your deodorant or whatever without somebody telling you no 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 you can't wear that deodorant here. So, I think that's going to be a tough issue for you down the road.
4: Yeah, there's definitely a movement afoot in certain areas. I know in, in the province of Nova Scotia, it, it, they've had a law in, put, put into place or what they call uh, a bylaw actually, which says that you cannot enter a building if you uh, are using personal products in a, in a you know, what it considered to be uh, excessive manner. And so there's been a lot of test case over there in terms of doing that. So you're right, it's, it's an issue that's gonna be continuing to be an issue.
1: And Cliff, before we jump to the roundup, uh, any questions or comments? No, I'm good. All right, I see we got a couple of messages. If you could check the, oh, does the ASHRAE guidelines suggest or recommend numerical IAQ standards or guidelines?
3: I think it yes. points
4: to the ones in 62.1. Yeah, and keep in mind that the, these are, are usually based on um, uh, criteria from other organizations, not necessarily from ASHRAE itself. Um, so, for example, in the table that is in uh, 62.1, a lot of them are from the California uh, guidance in terms of levels. So it, 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 there are guidelines there. Uh, they're not necessarily standards because this is not that type of document, but there is a lot of information out there that, that gives you some guidance as to what is acceptable and what is not.
1: All right, I've got one more text that I think is really interesting. Can you address the health of occupants? Is there info on how to assess either risk assessment or impact, particularly the reduction of risk through the implementation of the guideline and occupant complaints? Who wants to jump on that one?
4: <laughs> well, you're throwing more grenades at us today uh, than usual, Coach job. Um, <laughs> Basically, I would say that the not the informative sections are addressing that. If you look at that di- that outline uh, that you provided uh, of the uh, if you want to have Grayson put it up again, uh, I'll show the section that we're talking about. Um, if you have appendix A, it talks about the health impacts of air pollutants. So uh. that particular informative appendix A is something that you should take a look at uh, in the di- in the uh, book and I think it will be helpful in that regard.
1: Hey, while you've got that up, um, if if you could just kind of go through these other of informative appendixes. it's the only thing I think we didn't get to at this point, except for startup.
3: Well, the humidity well, issue, mean, uh, yeah. informative appendix B, we talked about it's so, about zeroing in on uh, the impacts of humidity and, and microbial growth, and uh, discusses also dew point, I believe. Um, and I will let somebody else take care of the next two. Tina, can you comment on
1: the carryover?
2: Sure. Um, That appendix really is going through um, a lot of the uh, impacts on indoor air quality in energy recovery and and having that crossover of the outside air and exhaust entrainment into your indoor space so it goes through some calculations for you. I'd also say uh, Appendix D is case studies and that's a a great area that um, where it's giving some specific examples of using the IAQ procedure which as Don had mentioned hadn't been widely accepted because it was pretty complicated. Uh, The intention with those case studies is to help someone who wants to use that And actually see it in practice. So give some case studies there, Um, and then Appendix E is the references for.
1: Fantastic. Let's go to the roundup, Grayson. All right. Let's start with the Z Man, Cliff Slotnick. Cliff, I haven't been able to follow all the chat, but do you have any any final comments or questions?
0: I, I. I think there was one on there that, that, that Ralph Froelich had, which was uh, Does ASHRAE guidelines suggest or recommend any numerical IAQ standards or guidelines?
4: And the answer to that, Cliff, is that there are two areas. One I've pointed to is the informative uh, Appendix A, uh, which does discuss some of that. But in the section on indoor air quality, uh, there are number uh, numerical numbers that are put up as guidance. Many of them come from the California. Um, you know, I forget what the CREC stands for, but it, it, there is a table that talks about a number of different contaminants that uh, would be there. So that's where I would look if I, you know, if I'm if Ralph is interested in looking at in 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 that uh, in that areas.
0: Thank you.
1: You know, I also I, I want to mention there's a good section on construction system startup and commissioning. We didn't talk a lot about that, but commissioning is such an important topic that. I, I just wanted to make sure we emphasize how important that is. Tina, I assume that is one of the big things that your group deals with a lot.
2: Yes, we do. Um, it's really making sure <laughs> that it actually works the way you in, intended when you just did the design or did, had the ideas. And I deal with that every day. Um, if it's not commissioned right, you're probably going to have a problem later. That's for sure.
1: Absolutely. And then operations and maintenance is a huge topic that you know we, we've talked a little bit about, but... Um, I think that section is very important. What I When I was thinking while I'm reading this, I used to teach courses, and I'm like, oh, this would be a great document to develop a course for people who manage buildings, you know, even though it goes above and beyond what, you know, 62.1 requires. That's what they need, and it gives good, solid guidance to them. Are there any thoughts about developing a course that would kind of follow this and presenting that to operations and, you know, maintenance people all over the world? Well, of course...
4: Yeah. We should do that. I mean, but um, we just came off an eight-year eight, eight year cycle on this particular topic. <laughs> Come on, Dawn. <laughs> Give us a chance to catch up. Maybe we need we need an education or uh, maybe we need an educator on this on this group. Yeah, uh, I think uh, so. Yeah. I say the same thing. <laughs> Dawn,
0: you're the one that mentioned warp speed before. If you did it once, <laughs> you do it again.
4: Yeah, Joe, are you up for warp speeding this uh, group? I'm
3: kind
0: of sliding into retirement
1: here. I don't know. We'll... We'll, we'll see what happens. But, uh, but you'll,
3: you'll be like Don in
4: retirement. He has all that extra time on his hands. Yeah, up. yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> Ask Len <Lynch-y. laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, it, on a more serious note, yes, it, it is certainly an idea that we've talked about. Um, and we are, as a committee, we're going to continue to keep this, uh, you know, keep this evergreen. Uh, because we have to answer to the questions that people have, the comments that people have, the changes people want to put in. So the committee itself is going to go on and those types of things will be something that they'll discuss.
5: Hey, Joe, you didn't forget about me, did
4: you? No, <laughs> That's right. You got to let, let
5: me jump in now. I didn't want to interrupt, but... <laughs> go I've for it. The, I've already sent the text. I'm going to be late for my one o'clock Zoom and I, I, I don't want to say on the air the two people that I have I've, I've pushed off. So listen, uh, great show, guys. I, I have a few comments that I'd like Cliff to put into the uh, blog. And then I, I have I have a question I'm going to raise for the committee. Don, maybe you may kick it off. And it was based on a conversation I had with Carl Grimes the other day. So anytime I come off a conversation with Carl, it's interesting, and it's directly related to some Ashray stuff. The first thing I want to say is this whole thing with DuPont, I'm glad it's coming up. When I first started exposed to DuPont, it was in the 1980s before I actually went to work for Dry's and started teaching the psychometrics in those classes. And it really came from Munters. You know, Monter's were the guys, and they always they always talked about dew point. It wasn't until late 80s, early 90s, when I met Phil Maury and Elliot, you know, we started talking about water activity and the differences. So I think dew point is great. Now, from our industry standpoint, well, and actually the other thing, Lou Herriman wrote a book with cargo care in the early 90s called The Moisture Control Handbook. And they talked about the use and application of humidity control systems to control dew point and Southern climates in, in supermarkets with the doors opening and closing all the time and everything dripping. So this whole thing of dew point's been around a long time, but it's been under the radar. So I'm glad to see it happen. From the restoration industry standpoint, we have gotten so sophisticated now with the monitoring systems, remote monitoring, um, all cloud-based technology, to measure all this stuff. So if you guys are not familiar with that, you know, inviting somebody from that sector may be helpful for you because we have to do it in restoration to, to show that we're in compliance with industry standards, but more so to provide documentation so we get customers to pay the bills. So, you know, that's a big driver. Um, so anyway, I thought that'd be something helpful. Now, uh, the other thing is I remember those 62 days. I was around then. And I remember the argument and in, in the that, that multiple public reviews it went to was a battle between is Ashley going to write a technical document or are they going to deal with health issues, which was, uh, you know, was more right brain than left brain that Ashley is normally with. And that was probably one of the reasons why it took to, so long to get it out. But I could see now, and I think this started with that, um, that uh, position paper that Ashley wrote on moles, I don't know, Don, if you were part of that, but I think Lou Herman was the lead author. And he's presented that to a number of different audiences, including restoration. I thought it was interesting. So it seems that Ashley started at least moving in that direction uh, to create this hybrid mix, if you would, between technical stuff as engineers and, of course, the implications of the, of the health. So I think that's a good thing. Um, so let me get to the, to the key po- point here that I got into a discussion with Mr. Grimes about. He said that he is on a committee now, and ASHRAE is writing a position paper on indoor environmental quality. And I I suspect that there's some uh, CIA, uh, you know, AIHA people on there, too, because it seems that it crosses over into the industrial hygiene area. Now, this conversation came up with Carl because it differentiated, I wanted to talk to him to get his viewpoint to do it between indoor air quality and outdoor air quality and and apparently under ASHRAE's charter they don't deal with the outdoor air and all the outdoor environmental risk that all kinds uh, is mostly regulated comes under the EPA stuff but the indoor he it, this is something that he told me which was new to me said it's broken down into four areas the first area which directly impacts indoor air quality of things that our audience and we're all familiar with that there's three primary drivers of indoor air quality problems, either VOCs, uh, microbials, or particulate matter. That's, I mean, I learned that years ago when I I was teaching with Gene for Tulsa, and all that kind of stuff. So that's just one category. The other two uh, are noise, you know, sound, um, or the other three, heat. And I guess heat's a really big one. And then I think the third one was light. Now, if I got that wrong, Don, you can correct me because you're an ASTRA guy (laughs) and an AIH guy. But it seemed to me in talking to Carl, when I listened to you the this show, that that position paper is is going to overlap and be pretty closely aligned and parallel to the standard that you guys are creating. Now, did I miss something or am I kind of on the right track there? So I'll turn it over to you guys to comment on that, because uh, I think it's uh, very relevant to the show. And uh, if, you, if your two committees aren't uh, talking, you probably should be.
4: Well, I can say this much: we definitely talk to each other. There's no doubt about that. Um, sometimes we even make progress. You never know. But yes, <laughs> there, 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 there is, um, there is. Def- I, I wanted, I wanted to focus on one thing that he, that uh, Pete came up with, which is the the whole idea of 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 health being a separate item uh, from indoor air quality and from ventilation and things of that nature. That was a rule of the board. Uh, you know, they, they call it a rob. Uh, which is that they would not allow, uh, because because of the uh, the idea that, that, in, that the engineers were not health experts, they shouldn't be commenting upon health as being part of this issue, uh, which has been now eliminated. It just got voted down uh, in the meeting in the winter. So we as an organization recognize health is a very big part of what we do within uh, ASHRAE. And so the, the paper that you're talking about, Uh, is certainly going to be um, something that when she knows a lot about, because she's on the health and wellness PD uh, physician document on that. So she and Charlene Bayer and some other folks are working on that Pete. So I I think that you're going to see more of that type of activity going forward, uh, which I'm very much happy to see because I've been a member of ASHRAE since 1999. And this is now I can actually speak up about health. Uh, which before was not always considered to be something that we wanted to have as part of the discussion. So thank you, Pete, as always, for, for bringing up those comments.
5: So, Don, um, I saw Lanchi, she, uh, she put something in the in the uh, chat log there about being on that committee. So I think that's great. The other one little thing I'll, I want to remind everybody, uh, in case Cliff or Joe forget, but that, that thing earlier in the show where you said uh, when you got the audible turning you said you have to check on it and get back so it's in the blog. And a couple of things that we've been talking about because the, the document, you know, we, we could do a couple, two hours, three hours showing this. But um, remember, we have the afterthoughts, and the afterthoughts is where all these things can kind of be ferreted out. And so it seemed to me that that's where we can, um, you know, bring the information that you got to take a look at. It doesn't get in the blog or whatnot. But anyway, uh, terrific job. Uh, Elliot or Danny, you guys have any comments uh, on any of the comments I made before I log off here?
3: No, I just thank you, Joe, for your um, comments, and good to hear your voice again.
1: Great to see you, Elliot. Uh, Tina, any final thoughts before we go?
2: No, just thank you for letting me participate um, and uh, look forward to – I'm going to now participate and actually listen to your blog. I didn't know about it before, so this is great.
1: Well, it's great Bye. to have you on board, and and thanks for joining us today. It was, it was a real pleasure meeting you. And, Dawn, before we go, final thoughts?
4: Uh, just that, you know, if, if you're interested in the book, which I hopefully this was uh, our uh, created interest, please go to the ashray bookstore. Uh, it's on sale now as either a PDF or as a hardcover book. So, um, you know, go ahead and um, and um, make your, you know, m- get some information about that and go and, and, and pick it up and hopefully then generate some questions or comments on the uh, overall document.
1: Yeah, I, that's what I'd highly recommend. I think it's one that should be in your, you know, if you're, if you're dealing with indoor air quality, it's, it's one you should be aware of and uh, one that you should probably have in your library. So thank you all for joining us, and thanks for all your hard work in putting this together. I know it wasn't an easy, uh, an easy lift. So uh, these, these documents can be uh, a whole heck of a lot of work, and, and you don't get paid. So thanks again for your time on the document and your time with us today. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guests, Tina Bruckner, Dr. Elliot Horner, and Don Weeks. Also, my co host the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, Grayson, Gone Fish, and Fisher at the controls. Most importantly, our sponsors and loyal audience. We'll see you in two weeks with the next live episode of IAQ Radio Plus.
0: For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.
4: Oh, we're still recording?